search um, activities and updates, just a reminder about that. Um, also, we are in need of volunteers for our sound and tech team. If you're interested in learning how to do that, please contact the church office. And we'd also, um, Pastor Mark's going to preach on the Last Supper um, this morning. So if you have a chance during the kids moment, go and grab some wine or grape juice or whatever you uh, want to use for communion while your kids are watching the kids time. That would be great. We just want to extend our condolences to Portia and Albert. Uh, Portia lost her dad in Nigeria last week, so we just want to keep that family in prayer. Uh, let's just bow and pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. God, we thank you for this church, God. We thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit is moving through this church, God. And we just pray for Portia right now, Lord, as she lost her dad, God. And we just pray for the family, God, that your Holy Spirit would comfort them during this time, Lord, that you would give them strength, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 26 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, as we continue to walk with Jesus through his final days before the cross. This is the series that is going to take us all the way to Easter. And as we come to this passage, um, understand Jesus has less than 24 hours left to live. For each moment, for Jesus is precious. Every moment was a moment that was likely to be one of his last. You know, the last time he laughs. This last night, his last time he got to teach, the last time he got to gather with friends, and his last meal, the last supper. Because Jesus was facing the certainty of his death at this point. And as he does so, he does something that is both unusual, but at the same time, all too familiar for us as his followers. As Jesus invites his disciples to reflect on the cross. He invites the 12 and all who would come after them to participate in some small way in the suffering that he was about to go through. Jesus asks his followers basically to remember his death. And he does that as he gives us a new celebration. He gives us the Lord's Supper. And as Rod said earlier, we're going to give you the opportunity this morning to celebrate communion. Uh, once again this morning. I know it's not the usual time we do it, but if you're interested and would like to join us, I would invite you uh, to take advantage of that today. Because as we read our passage, uh, we begin in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17, where it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you um, this morning, um, for many of us, it's at the end of a hectic week, a distracting week. Uh, We've had lots of things going, lots of duties, lots of agendas, and Lord, sometimes those things are hard to let go of. But Lord, in this hour, in this moment, as we come to you to open your word, I pray that all of those things could be left aside, swept aside, as we just give you and your Holy Spirit, our undivided attention as we look into your word this morning. And not just look into your word, but Lord, as we reflect upon not just Jesus' last days, but Lord, Jesus' sacrifice for us upon the cross. Um, May it impact us this morning, Lord. May it speak to us just in a a new way. Uh, Lord, as we come at it and see it with new eyes and fresh ears and And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you would just really powerfully speak to us this morning as we walk with Jesus through these final days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the time had come for the feast. Uh, Of course, the Jewish calendar is, it's full of feast days and celebrations every year. Uh, They had the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets. Um, They even had the Day of Atonement. But the most important feast of all, without any doubt, for the Jewish people was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was, it was the Passover. That was the biggest event of the year. That was the one everyone in Israel was most excited about. They, the one they were waiting for. And the disciples were no exception, which is why they asked Jesus in verse 17 of Matthew 26. They said, now on the first day of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go to the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, as you read that, you have to understand that a person needed to prepare a lot of things to properly celebrate the Passover. Uh, It was more than just the sort of the usual difficulties of just cooking a big meal for a big crowd. Uh, The disciples... There were specifics involved. They needed a place to celebrate. And even when they had a place, they had to go to that place and and they had to make sure the room was ceremonial clean. They had to remove all the yeast uh, from the room. And then they would need to find a year-old lamb for the Passover and a priest to sacrifice it. And then they needed some very particular groceries uh, because the Jews had been celebrating Passover for 1,500 years. And in that time, all kinds of traditions grew up around the feast. So they needed some bitter herbs Uh, as part of the feast, to represent bitter suffering. Uh, They actually made a paste out of fruit 
And that was to remind them of, of the labor of making bricks in Egypt. They needed some salt water uh, to remind them of the Red Sea that they crossed. And of course, they needed some unleavened bread. Uh, they actually called the bread in the Passover the bread of affliction. And that bread reminded them just of the haste in which they were delivered from slavery when the bread did not even have time to rise. And they needed all of those things and more because of all the reasons that they had to celebrate the Feast of Passover over and over again, year after year. The Passover was first and foremost a chance for Israel to remember that God had rescued them, that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Passover was actually designed to tell that story again and again, year after year, generation after generation. It was given to the people so that they would have yet another opportunity to recall all that God had done on their behalf to set them free. And many of you know the story behind the Passover. You know, the, the nation of Israel went down to Egypt during a great famine, and, and they stayed there. And over the years, their, their numbers, they multiplied. Their numbers grew so great that Pharaoh himself grew afraid of them. So he, turned, he, he enslaved the entire people. The entire people were put into bondage, all of Israel. And there was no way they could resist. They weren't warriors Egypt was the most powerful military force of the day. How could a bunch of simple shepherds stand against that? They couldn't. There's no way for them to save themselves. That is until God heard their cries. And he raised up a deliverer named Moses to set them free. And when Pharaoh refused to submit to God and free, you know, the children of Israel from their bondage, God sent them plagues. He sent the plagues to Egypt. And each plague was worse than one before. But with each plague, Pharaoh's heart became even more hard, more stubborn. That is until God sent one final plague. In Exodus 11, verses 4 to 6 says, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But you know, even as God sent destruction through that plague upon Egypt, he also tempered it with grace. Because God promised that each household would be safe if they provided a substitute. Each child destined to die could be saved by the blood of a lamb. And as the angel of death was passing through Egypt house to house, if he saw the blood of a lamb upon the doorstop of the house, the doorpost of the house, the angel of death would pass over. That's where the name of the feast comes from. That was the salvation that Israel gathered to remember year after year. They remembered that through the sacrifice and blood of an innocent lamb, death passed over and the people of God were set free. So that was the reason that the disciples had gathered in that upper room with Jesus that night. At least that's what they thought. And it's not until we get to verse 20 that we have any indication that this would not be sort of a Passover as usual. And beginning of verse 20, we read, When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, 
one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And I'm sure with those words, the air sort of went out of the disciples' lungs. Betrayal. And verse 22 says they were sorrowful, very sorrowful. That's actually, it's an understatement. Matthew's word that he uses there has the meaning more like the disciples were nearly sick inside. When they heard that, they were distressed nearly to the point of physical pain. This news comes to them like a punch, punch in the gut. Because they couldn't even conceive of what Jesus was saying. A betrayer by one of their own. A betrayer amongst themselves from their very group. It was something that seemed almost impossible. Because these were men who had spent the better part of three years together. I mean, they knew each other. They were more than just men who sort of worked together. They, they, you know, they were as close to a family as people could get. They knew each other. They worked side by side with each other. So who could it be? After all, Jesus' words about the one who has dipped the hand in the bowl with me, it said little more than it was somebody in this room. Um, that the betrayer is one of you. Someone who we've eaten with. Someone we've laughed with. Someone we've worked with. Someone who's one of the twelve. And Matthew tells us that one by one, each disciple said to Jesus, Is it I, Lord? And I'm not sure if they were sort of trying to clear their name or defend their innocence by asking Jesus that but when Judas's turn comes, we read in verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, did you notice the difference in Judas's words? Because all the other disciples ask, Is it I, Lord? But Judas asks, Is it I, Rabbi? And it's a subtle change, perhaps not even enough for most people to have noticed. But Jesus noticed. And he says, you know what? You said so. Judas, the very words from your own mouth have given away the condition of your heart. Because for all the time Jesus had spent with Jesus, it seems Judas still did not just see Jesus as his Lord. Which is why Judas did ultimately what he did. Because I think for Judas, in, in time, just following Jesus just didn't come as advertised. Um, have you ever bought something and when you got it home and opened it, it just, it wasn't what you were expecting. Maybe the, it was the wrong color or the wrong shape. Maybe it was clothes and they did, just didn't fit right. I think that's how Judas now felt about following Jesus. When he began with Jesus, I'm sure he was excited. What an opportunity. It was every Jewish boy's dream to be accepted by a rabbi to be his disciple. I mean, it was a badge of honor. It was a feather in your cap, a sign of status among the Jewish people at that time. It was a great honor. But then Jesus didn't really act like all the other rabbis did. You know, instead of, you know, 
hanging out with the important people. Jesus spent his time with outcasts and sinners and prostitutes. Instead of upholding sort of the status quo, Jesus actually challenged it and got some very powerful people very upset with him. Instead of seeking sort of net gain, Jesus told his disciples they needed to give. Instead of sort of leading, Jesus told them to serve. Instead of, you know, teaching them how to get ahead, Jesus told them that the first are going to be last. And then came the moment that probably broke him. When the woman anointed Jesus at Simon's house with that expensive perfume. And Jesus just let it happen. But where Jesus saw an act of extravagant love, Judas saw only extravagant waste. And it seems that he couldn't take it anymore. To an ambitious and money-hungry guy like Judas, it just seemed like at this point there was now more to be gained by betraying Jesus than by being obedient and being his follower. And that's why right after that uh, woman anoints Jesus, we read in Matthew 26, verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And this would be the night that Jesus, Judas would get that opportunity that he was looking for. The time to betray Jesus had finally come. And the Gospel of John actually tells us that at that moment, Judas actually leaves the group. He leaves the room. He leaves Jesus and all the other disciples to do what he intended to do. But you know what? Maybe that's for the best because there's no place for selfishness or greed, or gain, or pride in the lesson that Jesus was about to teach his disciples next. In fact, what comes next is for only for people who call, can truly call Jesus their Lord. So with that business concluded, and now surrounded by his closest followers and dearest friends, Jesus does something that it changes the world forever. When he takes this Passover celebration that remembered God's deliverance of his people from Egypt long ago, and he transforms it into a new picture of the deliverance that God was about to bring about through him. And in doing so, Jesus gives us new symbols and a new meal for us to remember him by. It's a meal we still celebrate to this day. The Lord's Supper. And here's how it happens. Verse 26 continues. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. And when you think about that, what a powerful image of what was about to happen to Jesus upon the cross. As Jesus breaks the bread. Because Jesus is about to be broken. He's about to be as broken as any man has ever been. There's going to be beatings. There's going to be scourgings. There'll be mocking. There'll be a crown of thorns. And finally, the cross itself, with those nails piercing his flesh. And when you really think about it, it's such an ugly thing that Jesus asks us to remember. 
Because the cross was the ultimate instrument of torture. It was perfected over years and years to deliver the most painful and cruel death imaginable. The cross represents a level of suffering that we with our modern sort of sensibilities, we actually would ha we have a hard time even comprehending the sheer cruelty and the sheer pain of it. But if we understood the cross the way the disciples in that room did, if we understood the cross as the instrument of torture and agony that it truly was, just the thought of it would inspire fear and dread in our lives. And it is really on the cross that we are brought face to face with the unavoidable and the unpleasant truth about sin in our lives. But you know what? For all of its ugliness, the cross is also the beginning of our salvation because it is through the cross and it is only through the cross that God provides salvation to his people. And it is because of the cross of Christ that the worst news becomes the best news, the good news. As Jesus' stripes and suffering become our means to being healed, as Jesus' pain buys our freedom, as Jesus' brokenness now becomes the gateway to making us whole. The Passover's bread of affliction has been transformed into the bread of life. And this ugly instrument of torture, it's the ugliest instrument of torture imaginable, the cross now becomes the most beautiful symbol of hope that the world has ever known. As Jesus' body is broken for us, Upon the cross. And then we're told in the same way, verse 27 continues, he took the cup. And when he, given, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know, the cup that Jesus offers reminds us of his own blood that was shed so that we might know forgiveness of sin. Which again is, when you think about it, is not the most pleasant of images. But as you read the Bible, you begin to see the importance of blood. When God made covenants with Noah and Abraham, those covenants were confirmed with the blood and sacrifice. When the angel of death passed over the people, it was because of blood. When the covenant of Sinai was ratified, Exodus 24 verse 8 says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament required blood as a sacrifice as for offering for sin. Even, even if those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. Because whenever God brought reconciliation between humanity and himself, because of sin, the price was always blood. In fact, Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But that's where the gospel comes in. And that's why Christ died for sin. 
That's why his blood was shed. While we were still sinners, Christ came and Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God sent his one and his only son to give up his life so that we could live. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he did that. Jesus did that through the shedding of his blood. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And those wages need to be paid, but Jesus offered his death in our place. He died as our substitute. He died in our place. He paid the debt of sin that we owe. He was the one final perfect sacrifice that took care of sin once and for all. And Jesus was the one and only person who could do that. This was not something anyone else could have done. Any other person hanging on that cross would just die for their own sin. But no one else's. Only Jesus was the sacrifice, the person who was without sin, without fault, without blemish. Only Jesus lived the perfect life. Only Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Only Jesus was the one who could die. And that's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am one of many different ways. He didn't say, I'll show you the way. He didn't say, I'll tell you which direction to start heading in. He said, I am the way. The one and only. And there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Only Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus shed his perfect blood to pay for our sins. And that is the salvation. That is the good news that the broken body and the blood of Christ declare. And you know, I'm sure I've told you this before, but that means in a very practical way, very practical level, that you are loved very, very, very much by God. And there's no way, other way to put that. The love that God has for you is beyond your ability to even comprehend it. And if you ever need to be reminded of how much God loves you, all you need to do is look upon the cross. The cross is God's love for us, love even for people who are sinners on full display. And that's why Jesus wants to keep bringing people back to the cross. That's why Jesus asked his followers to do this in remembrance of him. Because you know what? I think Jesus knew that we can be very forgetful as people. Um, we have so much going on. It's easy to forget things. I forget things all the time. And it's easy to let things slip our minds if we're not focused on them, if we don't make them a priority, especially something as horrifying as the cross. I mean, we don't like dwelling on, on painful things. We don't really like pondering and spending time thinking about suffering. We don't like being uncomfortable. We avoid it if we can. So it would have been, I think, easy for the disciples to overlook the cross. Even after Jesus was gone, how much easier would have been just to remember his lovely teachings? How much nicer just to focus on those amazing miracles? How much more comfortable if we just talked about how much Jesus had compassion for the poor? We don't need to talk about that messy cross. And yet Jesus calls his followers, most of all, first of all, 
back to the cross. To remember his death, to remember the suffering he endured, to remember the life that he laid down. Jesus is telling us, do not forget about this. Don't forget about the cross. Don't avoid it. Don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. Don't devalue it because the cross is not something we can be casual about. It is not something we should be overlooking. The cross is central to our life, central to our faith, and central to our salvation. And though the cross can be uncomfortable to look upon, it was Jesus' desire by giving us this meal to bring his followers back to the cross again and again and again so that we would not forget what he has done or the price that he paid. And we need to remember that because no one gets to experience the true joy of Easter morning without going through the horror of Good Friday. No one can truly experience salvation fully without an honest understanding of Jesus' suffering. We cannot get to the hope of life eternal without first confronting the death of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus takes these basic elements, bread and wine, food and drink, two things that are essential for our physical life, and he tells us they will now become a reminder of what is essential for our spirits. That's why we remember. And that is what we remember as we come to this table again and again. We remember our redemption. We remember our salvation. We remember our freedom. We remember our forgiveness. We remember the hope that we have in Jesus. And each and every one of those things are tied to the cross of Christ. And as I said, I'm going to break with tradition a little bit here because even though it's not the first Sunday of the month, If you would like, I would like to invite you to come again to the communion table with me today. And maybe after hearing all that Jesus spoke to his disciples at the Last Supper, maybe maybe just for today, we can see this table with new eyes. Enter into it with a new appreciation this morning. And that we might let our hearts just be prepared. Let our hearts be awed. Let our hearts be humbled. Just once again by the reality that this table represents for us and as we come i want you to know that this table is open for everyone to partake in as long as you have made the choice to make jesus your lord and savior you are welcome in fact you are encouraged to come and join us this morning you don't have to feel worthy to come you don't have to look a certain way or act a certain way you don't have to have your life together or be living your best life your life can be an absolute mess Because in a way, you might even say that's the entire point. Because we're all sinners. We all fall short. We all make mistakes. We all get it wrong sometimes. And if there was a sign, you know, above the Lord's table that says only the people who are worthy may come, not a single person would be able to partake of this table. That's why this table is not a table of merit. It's a table of grace. You don't earn your way to come to this table. You receive it. There's a story of a professor of Hebrew who taught in Edinburgh, Scotland, long ago. It said one day he was sitting in church at the communion table and he was feeling so personally unworthy that when the elements came around, he felt he just couldn't take them. And I know all of us have had moments like that. He just allowed the bread and the wine to pass. Pass. 
But as he was sitting there feeling absolutely miserable, he noticed another girl in the congregation whom when the bread and wine came around to her, she also allowed them to pass. And as they passed by, she broke into tears. And that sight seemed to bring back to the old saint the truth that he had forgotten. So he got up, took the plates, carried them over to this girl and whispered to her, take it, Lassie, take it. It's meant for sinners. And then he and the girl both took communion together. That's what we enter into as we come once again to the communion table this morning. It's a place for sinners. It's a place for sinners to remember the grace that we have received from Jesus that has been purchased for us upon the cross. And I'm going to pray before we come to this table. But again, if you want to join us, but if you still need more time, to get some bread and drink, uh, feel free to pause the video. I, I think you can do that even if you're watching it live and just take the moment to get ready at home. But let's pray as we enter into the Lord's table once again this morning. Father God, Lord, we just... Well, I can't even imagine the burden that Jesus must have been carrying in those final moments of his life when he knew his death was hours away, and yet everyone around him was completely oblivious. And even when he tried to share that pain with them, Lord, it seemed like it just went right over his head. And yet, Lord, in those moments, he wasn't, he didn't retreat into himself, he didn't wallow in self-pity. In those final moments, he still put others before himself. He still found ways to serve. He still found ways to minister. And he still put your will above all other things. And he gave to us this meal that we too might remember the cross. That it might not be something that, that grows dim in our memory, but is always something that is before us. And Lord, I know reflecting on death, reflecting on pain, reflecting on suffering can be uncomfortable, it can be emotional. It can be hard. But maybe that's a good thing. Because, Lord, we don't want to be comfortable with the cross. We want the cross always to be something that overwhelms us. Always something that is confronting us with the cost of our sin. And always something that reminds us of how great the grace has been that has been given to us. Grace that was given at the cost of the life of your son. Death that was meant for sinners was paid for Christ, by Christ. And Lord, this communion time is a, is a special time. It's time outside of our normal routine. And yet, Lord, I ask that because of that, it would impact us in just a special way. Um, that it wouldn't be routine. It wouldn't be just going through the motions. It wouldn't be us doing this because it's, the time is right, but Lord, that we would do this just in a special way as we remind ourselves once again of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ruth Bell Graham once wrote these words. She said, this is my body, broken like bread for you. This is my blood like water shed for you. 
Drink it and wonder. Marvel and eat. God torn asunder. Man made complete. Stagger the mind at the truth revealed. Kneel and be broken. Rise and be healed. Take all he offers. Take all and give. Here's a remembering. To scourge and to bless. Sinners partaking in God's righteousness. Lord's table is our chance to remember once again the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. His broken body and his blood shed. And that's what we want to do. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. To keep this truth always before us. And as we read Matthew 26, 26 again, it says, as they were eating, Jesus, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And as you reflect on those words, I want you to take the bread in your hand and just hold it. Feel it. It's a physical thing. It has weight. It takes up space. It's tangible. It's real. In the same way that Jesus also took on flesh. His body too was real. And his body, being real, experienced all of those same sensations that we do. Hunger, fatigue, sorrow, joy, sadness. So as you take that bread and you hold it, maybe tear it, Maybe crush it. As you remember, in those final moments of Jesus' life, the the physical experiences that he endured, from the feeling of the kiss on his cheek that betrayed him, to the words of Peter's denial ringing in his ears three times, the crown of thorn that pierced his brow, the sting of the lashes that shredded his back, the physical weight of the cross upon his shoulders as he carried it to the hill, the sharpness of the pain as the nails tore into his flesh, the thirst he knew, the breath leaving his body, the physical suffering, his body broken. That's what this this bread represents. That is all a reflection of the brokenness of Jesus. As you take this bread, spend a few moments reflecting and remembering the brokenness of Jesus' body upon the cross. Because Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Matthew continues in verse 27. It says, And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
It said there was a tradition in the first century when a young Jewish man reached marrying age, his family would select an appropriate wife for them and they would go to the other family and they would negotiate the bride price. And when the negotiations were complete to seal the deal, the custom was for the young man's father to pour a cup of wine and hand it to his son. And with the price paid, his son would turn to the young woman, lift the cup and hold it out to her saying, this cup is the covenant which I offer to you. And the young woman then had a choice. She could refuse the cup and hand it back or without saying a word, by drinking the cup, she was saying, I accept your offer. That the price has been paid and I give you my life in response. Jesus says, take this cup. This cup of my covenant with you. A covenant paid in my blood that offers you life. That offers you relationship with God. That offers you forgiveness of sin. Offers us the proof as Christians that the price has been paid on our behalf and it has been paid in full. And it's a reminder that Jesus did not just suffer. He did not just swoon but that the wages of sin and death and that Jesus died. He laid down his very life. His blood was poured out. He paid the ultimate price for us upon the cross. And as you take the cup in your hand and as you prepare to drink, don't, don't drink as tradition. Don't drink merely as part of a ritual. Don't drink out of routine. Drink in remembrance. Drink as you reflect on the price that was paid. Drink in mindfulness of the cross and the life that Jesus laid down on our behalf. Drink knowing that the blood the blood is what offers us the forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it was in that upper room at that Passover feast so long ago on Jesus' final night that Jesus reveals himself to be the perfect Passover lamb of God whose blood brings forgiveness and life and freedom to all who trust in him. And may we not forget that. May we not forget his suffering. May we not forget the cross. May we not forget the sacrifice. Because as Revelation 5.12 says, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray as we close. Father God,
Um, how good it is to be overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the cross. And Lord, I know the ugliness of the cross and the suffering of Christ is a, it's a reflection of the ugliness of sin in our lives and in our world. And yet, Lord, you loved us so much, you didn't leave us in that sin. You didn't leave us to die. You didn't leave us to suffer and be lost and live in spiritual blindness. But, Lord, you sent your Son to earth. Not just to teach us a better way, but to prepare a way through the laying down of his own life, through the brokenness of his body, and through the shedding of his blood upon the cross. And Lord, I know personally it's hard. It's hard to walk with Jesus through these last days, to see all that he went through, to see just the emotional strain he must have been under. The, Lord, as the cross grows nearer, just the, the burden that he carried. And then to walk to Calvary and to, in our mind's eyes, see that suffering, to see the nails, to see the spear that pierced his side, to see the crown of thorns, upon his brow, to reflect on that level of suffering, Lord. It's hard, but it's so necessary. And that's why we're thankful that you can bring us back again and again to the foot of the cross. Not so that we can wallow and feel guilty about our sins, but so that, Lord, we can understand that we have been forgiven and that we can again and again, remember the cost. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you. Thank you for the cross, without which we would be lost. But Lord, to have the cross means to have life and forgiveness and hope. Lord, thank you for these lessons that we have learned this day. May we be mindful of them all of our days going forward. In Jesus' name. Amen.